Welcome to Startup Syndrome with me, Julia Delin. And me, Andreas Johansson. When you hear it at face value, it's like, oh, they have these cool sensors to measure how long the lines are at any given point during the day. So they know how many baristas they need at any point during the day, which is like, oh, that's really clever. That's mm. innovative. But... I mean, they spent a lot of money to figure out that people drink coffee during the morning. And that's basically what they found out. <laughs> oh, we need an extra barista during the morning because that's when the lines are as long. Great that we spend millions of dollars on this tech to figure that out. This is a podcast where you get an unfiltered view of Stockholm's vibrant startup scene, also known as one of the greatest in the world. I was just saying that it feels amazing to finally be in the same room doing this podcast again. <laughs> yeah, finally. We're done away with Zoom and we're in the same place on Earth again. This time in New York. Yes, and we apologize for all of the bad audio and where it sounds like we're really not in the same room because there's much delay. But finally, we think that we can produce a good enough episode for you. And we are so excited to be in New York. And we thought this episode that we would talk about something relevant to New York, but also in the kind of media and in the zeitgeist lately, which is bankruptcies, specifically WeWork's bankruptcy. Yes, our Uber and Memo episode is actually one of the most appreciated episodes that we've ever done. So when we saw that WeWork were filing for Chapter 11, we thought we should talk about this. And we should sort of try to figure out all these terms. In the US, we talk a lot about all these chapter bankruptcies. What do they really mean? And also talk a little bit about WeWork as a case and what didn't work out for them and kind of uh, learning some things from their failures. But I think it's an interesting case to look at. Yes, let's just hop straight into it. So you are the WeWork expert here. <laughs> Tell us, what's the background and what's happened? Yeah, how much do you know about WeWork? I have been sitting at WeWork last time I was here in New York. It was very empty at that point. And I heard that it changed a lot after COVID since they do, well, basically co-working spaces for people. Yeah, and they've been around actually longer than I thought. They were founded in 2010. Oh. And uh, Adam Newman, who is the founder and was the CEO for a long time. The charismatic founder that everyone talks about. Uh, yes, he introduced this in a very charismatic way as this innovative office uh, concept, uh, which was more tailored towards freelancers or smaller startups, really looking for more flexible office solutions. So just grabbing a desk or a very small office space and not having a too long of a lease to tie yourself in too much. And this was very new at the time. Very innovative, especially in 2010 when it was much more common that you would actually not be able to rent space if you didn't sign a lease on, long, on a long-term basis. Yeah, and for like individuals or freelancers, it was basically impossible to find something that could fit within budget. So there was something really needed in the market. And the kind of meteoric rise that they saw from then was really spectacular. And I mean, WeWork was talked about one of these amazing unicorns and eventually decacorns. And at the peak, they were valued at almost 50 billion US dollars. Can you explain that to me? Because, I mean, this is a, basically a real estate company. And there's not really any tech involved, right? How could they be 
a venture-backable startup and a unicorn later on. Yeah, I mean, their first of many <laughs> implosions came in 2019. And I think that's when a lot of the investors and a lot of people in general realized that, okay, this has been valued like a tech company, but it isn't. Mm. It's a real estate company. And I mean, valuing a real estate company is much more basic and formulaic compared to a tech company. There are multiples based on kind of the assets that you own. But in this case, the very charismatic CEO, Adam, had convinced everyone that this is not a real estate company. This is the future and we're going to revolutionize this entire industry and so on. And that's why they got that valuation. And I was listening to another episode on a podcast from CNBC talking about the sort of rise and fall we work. And going back to the point that it's really not any economies of scale in this business. And apparently margins even went down as they scaled. So to such big extent, this is so clearly not a tech company. Yeah, and... Like I said, that's what many people realized in 2019 because they went from a 47 billion USD valuation in the beginning of the year. And just like eight, nine months later, they had dropped to 8 billion <laughs> in valuation during the same year. And during this time, there was talks of an IPO and they had starting a, started a roadshow. Um, and that's when a lot of info and a lot of the numbers emerged, which kind of gave... Uh, gave rise to this big decline and big, you know, bust. Um, mm. When people realized that behind the scenes, this was actually not that innovative and there's not much tech here to talk about. And it's really a, a real estate company with really horrible numbers and really horrible uh, margins. So what happened then? I mean, after this implosion during this time, Adam Newman, the, the CEO, was ousted from the company. We should talk more about his journey as well, <laughs> uh, maybe in this episode if we have time, because he stepped away with two billion uh, in his own pocket from a company that now is worth zero. So yeah. an interesting journey for him. But he left, SoftBank stepped in. I think they invested five billion and got 80% of the company. Oh, wow. So a huge investment and they took a huge majority stake and they kind of tried to get the business up and running again. And then in 2021, they eventually listed through a SPAC. Which we know is a great way to get into uh, being on the public market without really needing to show any historical numbers, but you can only show projections. And in WeWork's case, that was a great way of getting into the public market because obviously they had great projections, but if you looked at the historic data, you would have seen that this was not a company that the public market should be investing in. No, and that's a really good point because since 2021, when they listed, it's basically been just a steady, quite slow, but steady decline. And now they've lost 98% of the valuation that they had when they listed, which was only a fraction of the 47 billion they were at uh, when they were at the peak. To the loss of the public shareholders. Exactly. Uh, and I saw this quote in an SEC filing they've done that our losses and negative cash flows from operating activities raise substantial doubts about our ability to continue. <laughs> and I mean, to the surprise of no one, because this has been <laughs> well known since 2019. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> I think everyone has been waiting for this uh, to happen. Yeah, but we also saw this in- these incredible slides from SoftBank where you could see sort of the decline of the EBITDA uh, numbers in this graph that they had created. And at today, we're at this like bottom of the graph. And then from the f- now and onwards, it's going to be this incredible exponential growth <laughs> of this company. And of course, they were wrong. Yeah. Normally, when you see like PE firms uh, buying up distressed companies, there's usually like maybe a slow decrease in the <laughs> decline and then maybe they're leveling off and then maybe they take off. But in SoftBank's case, it was just from one day to the next. No, now it's going to be amazing. <laughs> so what did they think that they were going to be able to change with WeWork? Was there a solution for saving this company that has spent so much money on real estate, leases and renovating all of these spaces that they were occupying? It's easy to laugh at SoftBank and they've done a lot of or investments that you can look back at. I think they were in part also super unlucky because they invested and then COVID came and then uh, mm. interest rates went up. So kind of the macro trends were working uh, kind of not in their favor. But at the end of the day, these were also risks that any somewhat sophisticated person should have been aware of that if this is a real estate business and the business model is renting long-term and subleasing short-term, they are very exposed to that type of risk. For instance, interest rates going up. This became even bigger of a problem when COVID came and now they're tied into these very long-term, very expensive contracts, but suddenly demand drops a lot because everyone is working from home. Mm. So this was kind of the start to the end after this resurgence after 2019. To no one's surprise, like I said, it's just been a steady kind of slow march to to the eventual doom. But there was really no saving this company in the current climate that we have. And I know you have some funny anecdotes on the WeWork story. I remember you telling me about this community adjusted EBITDA a few months ago. Can't you talk about that? Yeah, so this became known to the public when they were uh, kind of preparing for their first IPO and they had to make public their yearly report and so on. So one line in the yearly report said community adjusted EBITDA, which is not a thing. No matter how creative your accounting practices are, this has not been and will never be a thing. But what it was was basically EBITDA, but with all the costs of community building activities <laughs> being removed. <laughs> so somehow now they were profitable because everything they did to build a community shouldn't count, in their opinion, <laughs> towards the result. I love that. Um, this podcast that I listened to, uh, they also talked about how uh, WeWork was such a cool case to invest in because they used AI before anyone else was talking about AI. And I think one of those examples is when they used AI to sort of understand how much coffee they needed to serve or at least how many baristas they needed to have in their office space. Yeah. When you hear it at face value, it's like, oh, they have this cool sensors to measure how long the lines are at any given point during the day. Uh, so they know how many baristas they need at any point during the day, which is like, oh, that's really clever. That's mm. innovative. But I mean, they spent a lot of money to figure out that people drink coffee during the morning. And that's basically what they found out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we need an extra barista during the morning because that's when the lines are as long. Great that we spend millions of dollars on this tech to figure that out. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that all these things really point to how we work in so many ways was a house of cards. It's so much built up based on the charisma of, of Adam Newman, who later went on to just start another company and raise money from Andreas and Horowitz super easily. And still they end up here in a chapter 11 situation. And we're going to talk a bit more about that. But chapter 11 means that they might have a second chance. What do you think about that? Is there a future for WeWork? I hope so, because at the very core, this is something that provides value and there is a white space for this type of solution in the market. So I think in this case, it's just about mismanagement of, of the company and the finances. But at the very core, the value proposition still holds, I think. And if there is someone who can come in and actually make the financials work, I do see a future for them. But I think it's interesting just to reminisce back to 2019 because that was the year that I was working at Swedish American Chamber here in New York. And I really got to see this implosion very closely because we were working closely with a lot of companies who were sitting at WeWork. Mm. And I remember back then I was thinking, okay, this is so apparent that this is a house of cards. And I was thinking about how the entire VC industry is going to have to change and we can't keep investing in these types of businesses that doesn't create any value, at least not to the extent that the valuation of the company suggests it would. But then the bubble just kept on <laughs> growing and growing for many other tech companies until basically now when we've seen an adjustment in the valuations. But I remember back then thinking like, oh, this is the beginning of the end for VC as we know it. Yeah. It took a while. It has really taken some time. And I think what everyone has sort of been saying is that, yeah, you know, this is a bubble and it's going to burst. But right now it's still going on. So for many years, we were just waiting for that bubble to burst. But as long as it wasn't bursting, then being on the train was better than being off it. And like you mentioned, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and I think people in general have heard the term bankruptcy and just assume that that means the company shutting down or will cease to exist. But it actually depends a lot on which type of bankruptcy you go through. So maybe you can explain that a bit more. Yes, so I am by all means no expert in this. But just to give you an idea of what we talk about in the US at least when we talk about bankruptcies, most people will mention that it's a chapter 11 or chapter 7 bankruptcy. And these two chapters are uh, basically just different kinds of ways of describing how when a company is unable to pay its liabilities, obviously then something must happen with this company. And chapter 7 is basically the typical one that we would know as a bankruptcy. It's putting a business out of business. Usually you get a trustee into the company here and assets are sort of sold off to pay off its debts. And when all of these assets are sold, generally the remaining debt that is left is forgiven and then the company is sort of shut down. But chapter 11, it's more like a Swedish uh, reconstruction of the company, a reorganization basically to prevent a chapter 7 bankruptcy. So this is where you go in and you restructure debt, usually by negotiating with the, the people that you have liabilities with and making sure that you set up something where you're able to pay back your debt, you're able to sort of continue on with the operations of the company, and you instead focus on 
building something for the future, which usually includes maybe selling off parts that aren't profitable or finding ways to reduce expenses. Usually this includes laying off a lot of people. And in WeWork's case, this is where they're ending up. Basically, getting a second chance to sort of restructure the organization to make sure that they don't have to file for this Chapter 7 bankruptcy where they will actually be, you know, completely out of business. And... Chapter 11 is actually much more common than Chapter 7. And that makes sense because what you want to do in a bankruptcy is extract as much value as possible for the people and organizations who have liabilities towards the company. And if you just shut it down, there's no opportunity for the company to generate any more revenues or in any way kind of works to improve the situation for them. Whereas if you renegotiate that debt you have, there is an opportunity for company to get out on the other side in a better position, which will actually be better off for all the stakeholders in the company. Yeah. And in Sweden, we talk about both bankruptcies and liquidations, if you look at the Swedish language, and both of them would be chapter seven bankruptcies. So basically, when when a company goes bankrupt, in Sweden, at least, you would sort of get this a trustee as well to look at its assets and see if you can sell something off. And then if you can, sometimes you'll have a bidding war on these assets and sometimes you just find a buyer who's willing to buy it off of you. And then obviously the money that comes back into the fund of the trustee who's managing the bankruptcy, then that's where you will sort of be able to pay back to the investor. But but most often investors don't at all see the money back that they invested. Yeah, and the difference compared to uh, a liquidation is that a liquidation is generally a voluntary thing at the initiative of the shareholders in the company. But it's not generally the case that the company can't pay off its debts because in that case it would have been a bankruptcy. But in a liquidation, generally a liquidator comes in, basically the same as a trustee, and for a period of time looks at whether there are any hidden debts or hidden liabilities that the company wasn't aware of or that the founders weren't aware of. But then after that, generally there is enough money to return some to the shareholders, whereas that's generally not the case in a bankruptcy. Yeah. And in the startup world, I would say that it's more common with the liquidation sort of before you end up at a point where you're realizing we can't pay our invoices anymore but it's a point where you're realizing okay this probably isn't going to go well we still have some money in the bank let's see what we can do with our assets and our liabilities and get our investors some money back at least while the sort of bankruptcy part is really when someone from (laughs) when a lawyer calls you saying you know you aren't paying off your debt and we're forcing you into shutting down the company. And like you said, generally a liquidation is on the initiative of the shareholders because they feel like now I want to leave this company or now Mm. it's time to shut this down, even though there might have been an opportunity to turn this around, whether if you want to stay and try to ride that ship, generally you would try to bring in new capital or maybe renegotiate the debt. But if you can't do that and the liabilities do expire or do mature, that's when it's time to (laughs) file for bankruptcy. So until you are at that point, it's usually a voluntary choice of the shareholders to do something like a liquidation. Yeah, and uh, we've seen that with Memo that we've previously spoken about in the podcast. Also, a 
previous company of the week, Washaway, that now filed for bankruptcy, where they actually had, I saw nine or 10 companies interested in in bidding on their platform and their brand. And now it's sold to a quite well-established laundry facility here in Stockholm. And perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps both of these companies were trying to sell off the platform or the assets in some kind of way before they eventually filed for bankruptcy but weren't able to, maybe because they didn't have that hard stop to some extent, but were just slowly running out of money. Or they decided to put the company into a bankruptcy just to make sure that they didn't spend more money from now on to see if there were any left for the investors in the end. Yeah, and I think in WeWork's case, it's going to be interesting now to see what happens because they still have a lot of locations throughout the world. I think it was over 700 locations. And I I saw a comment that they were aiming to keep as many of these locations as possible, even though they might be renegotiating the leases and the debt that they had towards these landlords. So maybe they end up in a really good spot after these renegotiations and can continue operating in a different way, of course, uh, but can continue to a point where they reach profitability. Yeah, I think that... It is a very interesting time to do this kind of reorganization to some extent because obviously these landlords will have trouble probably filling up this vacant space that WeWork will leave behind if they actually move out. So perhaps it's also in the landlord's interest to just lower the fee for them to rent it or somehow make a deal with them to make sure that WeWork actually continues to pay it off instead of just vacating the building and not paying their invoices from here on after. Yeah, and I think that's a really true point because the role of the trustee in a bankruptcy is to extract as much value as possible to all the stakeholders. And generally, the best thing to do is then not to just shut everything down and whatever assets are still on the books are sold. Generally, trying to renegotiate to be able to continue operating the company is what's going to extract the most value. So even though the landlords might not be happy that a lot of the assets that they have on their book now are decreasing in value, that's generally better than going all the way to zero. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the future we work from here on. And the company of the week you chose, you're really good at finding companies that suit the theme of the podcast. Tell us. Yeah, so I chose the company Places uh, with a similar type of concept to WeWork, but they are not filing for bankruptcy. So (laughs) they were much more responsible in their management of this company. But it's basically drop-in co-working spaces near your home. And they have places in Sundbyberg, in Sikla and Telefonplan. So for people that their office is in central Stockholm, but they live outside and they have roles where they don't need to be at the office, but still don't maybe want to be at home all day Mm. in a small apartment or together with kids that are crying and screaming and so on. This is a great kind of intermediary where you can get somewhere away from home, but don't have to travel all the way back and forth. So a really interesting concept. Which they pivoted to during the pandemic. And I think that was super interesting. Some background, this company was founded in 2019 by Soros Sang, Johnny Bao and Robin Hamrian. And the, the three four mentioned are still left in the company and running that. And they were part of our first ever Activate batch. And at the time when they came into the program, they wanted to use unused dinner restaurant space, basically, from nine to five for office space. 
and they had a sort of revenue split agreement with the restaurants and then they were in the space as sort of community managers making sure that everyone had a good time but they were using the chairs and the tables and the outlets and all of that from the restaurant so not really having that much costs except for the people who worked there yeah and i thought this initial concept was incredibly interesting and smart because you're looking at places in central locations who are being underutilized because it's dinner servings in those restaurants but during the day it's just standing there empty and you already have all the setup for providing coffee and water and so on. But then when the pandemic came, kind of the, the needs of their target audience changed and it wasn't as relevant anymore to travel into central Stockholm and they needed to be where their customers wanted to have the office. So they pivoted, as you said, and have found much better success now with this new concept being out in the suburbs. Yeah, and now they have real offices that they're renting out, real desks, ergonomic chairs, and monitors that you can use, and even phone booths in all of their locations. So I think that now they're pivoting to become much more where we work, but with a very specific niche of being where the customer is, who isn't going to their offices, but who lives in the suburb. And as far as I know, I don't think they have a community-adjusted EBITDA in their <laughs> yearly report. So. No, they have community events, but hopefully not <laughs> that in their annual reports, no. So I think they have a really good opportunity to take the concept, which WeWork were kind of first with developing, but actually managing the company in a responsible way and actually finding a profitable way of running this type of concept. Yeah. Fun fact is that we have a sustainability requirement at SSE Business Lab for the Incubate program. And as an example of a great sustainability slide, we still have places example from when they applied to the incubator in 2020, I think. Yeah, I love that slide. Mm. They talked about in the beginning all of the kind of good positive outcomes of utilizing office space or just real estate space that's being underutilized to a larger extent. And now having people travel less and not have to travel back and forth from and to the city, also really good from a sustainability sense. Yeah, a really impactful company. Definitely. Great pick, mm. if I do say so myself. Yeah, it was you who picked it, so... <laughs> So I have to say, it was great recording this podcast in the same room again. It's great to be here in New York, and uh, maybe we'll have time to record a few more while I'm still here. In any case, we'll be back next week, or another episode, as usual, on Wednesdays. Yes, I think that went much better than it usually does, and I hope you think so too. And if you do, please let us know. We want to hear from you what you think, even if you thought it was bad, you have to tell us. <laughs> we want to learn more always, and if you have ideas of what we should talk about, feel free to ping us. We love it. I agree. Now it's time to wrap up, so talk to you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>